Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. The FCA has been a problem child in regulation for about five years now, and I think that desperately needs to be addressed, but not by a change of structure. Today's guest details the problems he sees arising from the city reforms proposed by the candidates vying to become the UK's new Prime Minister. He outlines his plans to address the issues he sees at the UK Markets Watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority. And he explains why he fears that the current drive to innovate compliance could ultimately do more to weaken the function than improve it. Peter Haynes has spent 40 years working for regulators, including the FCA's predecessors, and in senior compliance roles at large banks, including Bank of America. Since 2017, he has led training in governance, risk and compliance at training provider CCL Academy. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to be here. So let's start with your experience in the compliance function. You have spent the majority of your 40-year career in senior compliance roles at some of the world's largest banks. How has the compliance function changed in that time? Certainly when I went into compliance, it was very different to where it is today. I went into compliance in the late 80s. And I was very lucky to get a job in the area of the London Stock Exchange that effectively became the first Securities Association in 1986. So I became a regulator very, very quickly. I then moved into compliance for about six years and then went back into regulation for four years and then went back into compliance for about 12 years in more senior roles. I was global head of capital markets compliance at Paribas before the BNP Paribas merger. I was head of European compliance at what is now UBS Investment Bank. It was the UBS Warburg at the time. And I was head of international compliance as everything outside of the Americas for Bank of America for four years before going into consultancy. When I went into compliance, most of the people I was dealing with in the front office were really very, very revenue orientated, without a shadow of a doubt. And senior management had their targets. And compliance was something that the regulators brought in. And frankly, it was a bit of a necessary evil. It was all about changing behavior so that people understood that it wasn't all about revenue generation. And the number of arguments I used to have with senior traders, bankers, managers, all all the way up to CEOs about, look, this isn't the way that you do business. But it did change. And I think a lot of that change arose from problems. The global financial crisis in 2007-2008 made a big change, but I think the change had already started to occur before then. 
because senior management started to think, well, look, this regulation thing, it's here to stay. And we personally are at risk if we don't start ticking a few more boxes on the compliance side and actually thinking and changing our own behavior. And then I think compliance changed from the change behavior mode to much more of an assurance mode. So senior management was saying to compliance officers, hang on a second, I'm at risk here. So what are you compliance going to do about it? So I think the emphasis changed, but also the type of stress changed from trying to convince senior management to actually trying to work with senior management to protect the firm. And I think largely we are now in assurance mode. Most compliance officers I speak to, and I speak to many and often, uh, really are in that mode. So how do you expect the compliance function to change over the next 40 years? I fear that the compliance will become much more of an assurance function. The beauty of a really good and effective compliance function is that it's able to look at a situation and say, right, not only do I provide assurance that everything is complying with the rules, but actually I give advice, I give assistance, I monitor, but also train as well. There's a lot of talk about compliance officers being replaced by robots. It's eminently feasible that that could be done more on the insurance side. So I think the emphasis on the advisory side, there's a risk that that will disappear a little bit because everybody will know what the rules are and compliance becomes more of a monitoring function. I think that's very dangerous because I think people do need an outlet or somewhere where they can go where they say, do you know what, it's just not clear what this means. How can I construct this new product? How can I develop this new transaction? Or how can I do what the client is asking me to do? And we need that advisory side, everything that the compliance function does. It has to take a risk-based approach. So it needs to understand where the key compliance risks are within their firm. And then there are a number of what I call active elements of the compliance program. So providing advice, providing monitoring, and also training. And there are some of the less front office facing or client facing elements of the compliance program, such as reporting, policies and procedures, regulatory relations, those sort of things. So I think those are the sort of elements of what the compliance function should do, all supported, of course, by senior management responsibility for compliance. And without that, I do not believe any compliance function will be successful. And you mentioned your concern that the compliance function will be firstly, perhaps overly automated in the future, and secondly, become more of a compliance monitoring function. Could you explain why that concerns you? My concern is that compliance is often around principles. It's going to be much more difficult to write algorithms, for example, that will look at in the context of individuals, the expected standards of behavior and the product or the client in question. It is easier. In fact, firms already do do automated monitoring. They're basically providing assurance. I think the overemphasis already in some firms on monitoring and less as a function that actually sits back and thinks, where should we be going? What should we be doing? How should we be doing this? So it's really important that we find a middle ground and the compliance should be in a position where it doesn't just do monitoring, but it can also challenge. It can look at business, it can look at transactions, products, new clients, onboarding of new clients and say to senior management, I don't think this is what you need. 
One of the interpersonal skills needed of a compliance officer is to have the ability to go to senior management and say, really, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want to do? And that's very difficult when that person determines your numbers at the end of the year. So very, very difficult indeed. But you know, good senior management will understand that. Okay. And obviously, we're speaking at a point in time in which the UK government is in the midst of a major rethink of the UK rulebook post-Brexit. What's your views on the various initiatives that have been proposed so far? And we're in the midst of the process to find a new UK prime minister. What's your views on some of the city reforms suggested by the two leading candidates, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, to date? I'm not convinced that people want another rehash of the structure. We've had this about every five years in the UK. The politicians take the view that the structure hasn't worked effectively. I'm not sure that there's any appetite within the industry to change that again, because any change in regulatory structure right now would be pretty traumatic for the industry. We've been through it too many times. We've been through too many changes and we need some sort of stability there. Is it the ideal regulatory structure? I'm not convinced it is. I was more in favour of a unified regulatory structure that we had under the FSA, but that had its own inefficiencies. I'm not convinced that the PRA and the FCA really communicate that well together, to be perfectly honest, with dual regulated firms. I don't think there's a partnership of the two regulators that we should have in that situation. We have a lot of dual regulated firms. All of the insurance companies, all of the banks are regulated by both the PRA and the FCA. And issues do overlap without a shadow of a doubt. With a regulated firm on key areas, you would expect If you're talking to one regulator, they should be acting in partnership. I'm aware of one particular dual regulated firm which was having issues with the regulators. And it was absolutely clear in this case that they weren't talking to each other about key things. So it's not a perfect regulatory structure, but I would rather not see any major changes to it because of the disruption. But I think there is concern in the industry about the effectiveness of the regulators and particularly the Financial Conduct Authority, which has become unfortunately very slow in terms of handling applications, processing things that they should normally be processing. New firms, new senior managers, etc. They're not quick enough and it's not good enough. They're not meeting their service standards. So I think the FCA has been a problem child in regulation for about five years now. And I think that desperately needs to be addressed. Now, I know they have a relatively new CEO And they say they will be a much more credible and assertive regulator. But my concern is it might be papering over the cracks. The FCA is not doing what it should be doing right now. And I think that needs to be addressed, not by a change of structure. We have a real issue with the motivation and the quality of staff at the regulators and particularly at the FCA. So something needs to be done about that. I'm a former regulator. And it's sad to see regulators demoralised because it's such an important job. And it's actually a really, really interesting job if you're motivated to do it well. But we're suffering from a a hemorrhage of good regulators. Ever since I've been in regulation and compliance since 88, we have suffered from people leaving to go into much better paid positions within financial services firms. And we've never, ever address that. Many years ago, I put together a proposal at the Financial Services Authority's annual general meeting, because the then executive chairman, Howard Davis, stood up and complained and said to us, stop recruiting our staff. We're losing all of our best staff. And I said, stop making it attractive to do so. Why don't you pay them more? 
I'm sure we would take a 10% increase on our fees if you paid all of your staff more, because we want good regulators. We don't want to be supervised by people who are not as good as they should be. Good firms will want good, well-informed regulators. And I said, anyone around the room object to a 10% increase in fees if we've got really, really good regulators? And everybody agreed. And then I said, well, why don't you get the top 50 firms to second a good person to the regulator for two years? And you'll have 50 people who really understand the business and will be there for two years. And interestingly, I got a visit from the regulator about a week later, somebody I knew. And he said, look, we're very interested in what you say. But firstly, we don't think the industry will be prepared to pay more so that we can give people a really good pay rise. And then they said, we've thought about your idea of secondment for the top 50 firms. Will they actually second somebody that's any good? And I said, well, we need to get a little bit more like the US. If you're a lawyer or a senior compliance officer in the US, if you've got a couple of years with the SEC uh, on your CV, that is a really good thing. We should be aiming to do that. And they said, yes, we've thought about this. But if we got somebody from each of the top 50 firms, the 51st firm would complain. And I thought, what? Really? That is just finding excuses not to do something. So I think there are things that one can do about this if, if the regulators really put their thinking caps on. Would there not be a conflict of interest if you second individuals from the firms to the regulator? Absolutely right. That's the one other thing that we discussed. And I said, look, you can get rid of those conflicts of interest. You wouldn't have a Merrill Lynch secondee supervising Morgan Stanley or City or someone like that. You can get around those. If they go into supervision roles, you get them to sign non-disclosure agreements. We're talking of professional people here. They have information barriers within their own firms. Why can't they have information barriers and disclosure of conflicts of interest if they're working for a regulator? Okay. Obviously, Brexit has created an increased workload for UK regulators. And I was going to ask if you thought UK regulators are well positioned to handle that. But it's obvious that your answer in relation to the FCA particularly would be no. What can be done to mitigate that? The issue that is remaining and still needs to be tackled is which rules will apply. We still have a lot of European legislation effectively on the statute books and a lot of the rules and the rule books still come from MIFID 2 and other directives and I think the decision as to how you deal with that is going to be really really important going forward over the next couple of years and we've seen in the past with consolidation of regulators where People have said, look, we're consolidating the structure, but we won't make too many changes to the rules because every time you make a change to the rules, it means changes to policies, procedures, systems, training, all sorts of things. And it's a bit of a nightmare when actually all you're doing is uh, rearranging the deck chair, so to speak. The principles of regulation are not changing. You don't need all of that change if you're not actually changing the principles underlying the rules or the detail. So... It seems to be becoming a bit of a political debate, which I find worrying. I heard the recent debates for the Conservative leadership and the hustings, the candidates saying we will get rid of all European legislation on our statute book by the end of next year or something. What does that mean in practice? Does that mean that if we get rid of that, we have to bring our own legislation in? 
And if you look at rules and regulations, does that mean we take out anything that has got MIFID or MIFID 2 on it or Capital Requirements Directive CID on it and change it? I hope it won't in practice. But what we desperately want to avoid is changing rules just for the sake of it. Changing rules just because it sounds good politically, because any change of rules means cost for the industry. And any change of rules meaning cost for the industry, which actually doesn't change the outcome for customers, markets and firms, is a crime as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Why should firms be spending money to change documentation systems and controls if there's no change in the regulatory outcome? And you mentioned comments in the Conservative leadership hustings in which the need to remove all reference to EU legislation in the UK rulebook as soon as possible was referenced. I wondered how concerned you are about political interference in the UK rulebook. I hear uh, very frequently now from senior financial services executives concerns around this mismatch between what the UK lawmakers believe is necessary for the city to function and remain competitive post-Brexit and what the city believes is needed. How concerned are you by that. I'm actually not that concerned about political interference in regulation because I think it's a fact of life. It always happens. You can make the Bank of England independent, for example, but the Bank of England still has to write to the Treasury every so often to explain why the information rate is X or Y. The governor of the Bank of England is appointed by the, uh, the Treasury. So independence of the financial regulatory system is all well and good, but it actually ultimately doesn't really exist. I'm more concerned about knee-jerk reactions from politicians. And when I heard Liz Truss say we're going to get rid of all of these laws and rules by the end of next year, my initial reaction was, oh, for goodness sake, that's going to be calamitous for the reasons I've set out. So I'm more concerned about a knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, FCA is underperforming in particular. Let's change the whole regulatory structure as a result. And go for yet another different structure of financial regulation. That's what concerns me more about political interference is the inappropriate and ill thought through knee-jerk reaction. And we've seen that many, many times in the structure of UK regulation over the last three decades. I wanted to ask what you make of the UK government's proposals for ministers to be able to call in regulatory decisions made by the Bank of England that they do not like. Yeah, I, that does worry me. My real worry would be if they start getting involved in supervisory decisions around particular firms. That is full of potential conflicts of interest. And that would worry me because I believe that with systemically important firms, that actually the regulators are doing their best to make the right decisions. However, maybe it, sometimes if they got a little push from the government to say, the CEO of a systemically important firm steps out of line, you've got to come down hard on them. There's evidence to suggest that in the past, the regulators haven't been maybe as hard on the systemically important firms as they might have been. There was a case of a CEO of a systemically important firm, and, and he was fined for a breach of the rules. There was a, a lot of surprise in the industry that the regulators didn't take stronger action against him. A lot of people said, would it have been the same if he was the CEO of a firm that wasn't a systemically important institution? And uh, the fact that it was systemically important, did the regulators have the courage to take the action that they really should have done? So uh, it may be that that actually would be beneficial if the regulators said, look, we've got this problem with a very senior banker, we want to take this action. And if the politicians said, well, actually, 
Yeah, go for it. You have our support. Okay, so political interference in the right direction is what you would like. Yeah, indeed. And you've mentioned a number of times that you're concerned by the FCA's ability to perform as it needs to, to police UK markets. You've mentioned a number of times also that you don't want to see a restructuring of UK regulators to address its shortcomings. And you would like to see the FCA take ownership of its resourcing issues. What are the risks of no action being taken in relation to the FCA's issues? Well, at the moment, firms who are applying for regulation their applications are taking far longer than they ought to. The FCA has this ability to stop the clock on an application process if they ask for more information. I've heard people suggest that they are asking more questions of an application. What it means is that firms are taking longer to get authorised. Firms are taking longer to get a change in their authorisation if they want to do some new business. And individuals are taking longer to get approved by the regulator than they ought to. So this is resulting in delay and it's resulting in cost for firms. Because as you can imagine, if you've got a new firm that wants to set up as a bank, the regulators say, well, you've got to have certain things in place when you apply for authorization. It means you've got to have a CEO in place, probably a chief risk officer, a compliance officer. You've got to have all of the systems in place or at least very clearly on the way to being in place. And all of that is cost, and you're getting no revenue at all because you haven't got the authorization to do the business. I've seen one firm that had everything pretty much in place for a year and was still waiting for approval. If they say that they will approve a new firm within six months, they ought to be doing that. Those are their published service standards. It's not good enough. And the FCA has said it's not good enough. So it's costing the industry. It's creating another barrier for entry into UK financial markets. A lot of people must be thinking, is it worth coming into the industry if it's going to take so long to be authorised? Why not do something else? You know, Why not do something that's a lot easier, such as give advice? So that means that the industry will potentially be less competitive than it would if there were not this barrier to entry. Okay. And we've previously spoken about the vast new workstream that Brexit has created for compliance teams as it's, it forced them initially to ensure that their financial services firms were compliant with the split itself, but also going forward, they will have to handle, they are already handling divergence in the UK and EU rule books. And that has created a huge amount of stress and strain for the compliance professionals responsible for that. How would you say that the profession is coping now? Is stress still a problem? And what could be done to mitigate that or indeed what is happening to mitigate that? Well, stress has always been an issue for compliance officers, particularly being a senior compliance officer is a stressful role. But a lot of the stresses from compliance are the demand from senior management to say, make sure we comply. I don't want the firm or I personally don't want to get into trouble. And I see that on the faces of senior compliance officers. I see it in their eyes quite often. And it worries me. I have friends in the compliance world and I look at them and think, gosh, you're really tired. Not looking as good as you were five years ago because of the stresses of the role. I'm not sure that there's a lot you can do to change the stress of the role of a senior compliance officer. There are probably ways of managing it. People are happier to talk about mental health issues. I hope and believe that this is no longer seen as a sign of weakness in people. It certainly used to be. The key thing is that good senior management will be looking at this. And I think if they fail to recognise it with compliance people, we're actually heading for a particularly difficult situation 
because firms do rely on senior compliance officers. The, the senior compliance people worked incredibly hard during the pandemic because of the challenges. We talked about Brexit challenges, the pandemic challenges for many firms were even greater because the regulators made it clear that despite the pandemic, you've still got to run your institutions. You've still got to have the same in interface with the market, with clients, et cetera, et cetera. And your controls have still got to work. So, you know, it was a real, real challenge. So the risk is, is definitely there. And I hope that compliance professionals are being looked after. And you mentioned we risk a difficult situation if that's not addressed. So what difficult situation would that be? Well, the, the obvious one is that compliance officers just will not be on their A-game. And you need to be able to think clearly in difficult situations, in grey areas. And in some of those situations, not only to find the solution, but you've also got to be able to challenge people who are coming to the wrong conclusion. And often those conclusions are driven by revenue. So that is going to be a very difficult thing to achieve if you are subject to, to significant stresses in your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it could risk a major blow up if that stress isn't addressed. Well, a personal blow up, definitely. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be good for the firm if your head of compliance or one of your senior compliance people becomes ill. It's not good for the compliance function. Mm -hmm. So lastly, and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge that concerns you that you think not enough people are paying attention to? The way in which business is changing. We want everything to be done over our phone so that mm -hmm. we can do everything we want wherever we are. We want to be able to do everything remotely. We don't want to have to carry cash. The challenge for regulators and compliance is to keep up with it. I've been with a particular credit com company for well over 20 mm. years, and they wanted to refresh their know your customer information on me. The part of this is you've got to get a hard copy utility bill in my name. Who gets hard copies through the post or, or a bank statement? So I couldn't actually find one that was within three months of the date. And ultimately, I didn't have a lot of time. I said to them, can you wait for another couple of months until Christmas? I'll try and do it then. And they said, no. So I said, fine, I'm closing my account. If regulators are asking for a hard copy of a utility bill within three months and they don't want one that's generated from the internet, they're living in cloud cuckoo land, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest. If compliance officers cannot be aware of what's happening in terms of the use of technology to do business and they can't not just keep up with it, but make sure it's properly controlled, then that's an area of significant risk. And I think mm -hmm. that's a big challenge for compliance officers. The challenge of compliance is to keep up with that, to keep it proportionate as well, and not to alienate the business in terms of putting unreasonable demands in place. And presumably the best way to ensure that compliance and regulators are responding to that as they should is through training them on the latest trends and ensuring their awareness of up-to-date technology is there. Very much so. But it's also a question of mindset as well that I have a mindset that is commercial, is saying, well, actually, yeah, the business is changing. And this is the way that the firm wants to do business, our customers want to do business. So how do we actually put the right controls in place that actually work well with that? And are there any additional controls that we have to put in place in the name of not just complying with the rules, but also avoiding any competitive disadvantage compared to other firms? Because other firms will find solutions up to every compliance officer to try to find that solution to keep their firm in a good competitive 
as well as compliant position. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. That's been a very informative and thought-provoking conversation today. So I really appreciate your time. Not at all. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.